Um, I'm just about to hand over to Teppo Tommy Natalia and Matthias, but I just wanted to set the stage by talking about the formal domain statements of the two groups, the strategy division and the SAP interest group, okay? So the domain statement of the strategy division, of which Michael, who's on, on here, is currently division chair, very much focuses on firm performance, with a common level of analysis being the organization. Those are things we know strategy for, the, the STR division for. Whereas traditionally, at least, the SAP interest group, of which, which is headed currently by Leonard Dobush, um, focuses much more on the strategists rather than the organizations. And has a wider range of outcomes which is concerned with, for instance, the, the skills um, and su success of individual or groups of strategists in particular processes, not necessarily connected to the financial performance or economic performance of the firm. So superficially, at least, there's a difference at least in levels of analysis and at least in dependent variables. Yet, as we look further, there are good grounds, good foundations to construct joint projects, joint interests and dialogue. So the strategy division is certainly interested in the decision-making processes with which SAP gets involved. It's interested in implementation and formulation, and it's also interested in groups, teams, and individuals within the organizations, the strategists that the SAP interest group talks about. There's some, some differences, of course, but uh, from the SAP uh, group. But what we see here is that, especially at the bottom, SAP is interested in the micro level areas of strategy process and content research. In other words, and I think Natalia and Sarah both epitomize this, Natalia looks at traditional areas of mergers and acquisitions, very much central to the strategy division. Sarah looks at innovation, again, core concern of the STR division, but they take a micro process lens to those, not just looking at the organizational level, but the micro processes within. So we do have a basis for conversation, dialogue, and maybe for joint research projects. And the various authors, which, or the various panelists, which I'm going to introduce now, or hand over to now, Teppo, Sarah, Tommy, Natalia, Matthias, all have their own distinct um, perspectives on this. They're each going to present for about eight minutes. Uh, there will be a little bit of time for Q&A. And um, there will be, hopefully, we all control the conversation pretty well, which is down to me probably, with there may be some brief final Q&A as well. For the Q&As, please could you either use the Zoom raise hands function, and don't forget to lower, and actually often this works best, um, you post a Zoom chat, and I'll ask the panelists to keep an eye on the Zoom chat. And if you've got any relevant references or conferences to point out to and share with the community, please post them to the chat as well. That's a great way in which there can be a more permanent record of what, what's going on. So, Teppo, are you ready? I'm about to stop share and um, hand over to you. Thank you very much, Teppo. Yep, I'm ready. 
Great to see everybody. Let me just share my slides here. So thank you for organizing this, Richard, and, and Michael as the uh, great leader of the SDR division for putting these sessions together. Um, so share screen. And, and if I could just get a thumbs up from somebody. Richard, can you see that? Perfect. OK. All right, uh, so my name is Tepo Feline, thrilled to be uh, part of this. I was Richard's colleague in there in Oxford for eight years, and we actually had sort of paper in the works at one point that sort of tried to meld our respective interests uh, in, in kind of strategy and strategy as practice, and, and uh, maybe we'll revive that at some point. But I think that there are a lot of um, overlaps and, and, and opportunities. So this is definitely, um, I, and I'm trying to sort of emphasize that a biased point of view is, is my point of view. and and. Um, Anyway, and, and it'll all get cleared up by the other panelists who come up next. I had to do this. I uh, I asked um, I had to ask ChatGPT what it thought about sort of strategy and and the strategies practice, and it did pretty well. Like it, it, it sort of comes up with really interesting focus on the individual social processes, essential routines and practices, agency and context, and then over here you see it actually gave some future research opportunities, and you'll all be happy to know that it cited all of your guys' work. And so I asked, I said, what are the key references? And it cited this panel. That, that, that's the best stuff at the nexus of, of strategy and strategy is practice. And so anyway, um, but, but I'll, I'll sort of give my own spin rather than the, than the sort of the uh, natural language processing spin. So I'm going to kind of talk about what I think are foundations. And I think these foundations weirdly kind of unite um, um, you know, I, I don't know that I represent SDR sort of proper, uh, you know, my, my angle's kind of been micro foundations that I do some research on cognition and perception and, and, uh, and, and work with people in kind of complexity theory and things like that. But, but I think that this sort of highlights kind of an overlap between, between the two divisions a little bit. So I'll talk about some foundations. So, um, Maybe one of them is that uh, kind of from a micro-foundational micro perspective is that organizations are made of, of, of people. And so the, the who of our study matters, um, uh, but this isn't sort of straight up kind of some kind of raw individualism or anything like that. It, it, you know, aggregation matters and emergence matters. So when people interact, we influence each other. So that's important. The structure and design matters. From my perspective, something that's I think important and something that we can build on as as sort of joint fields is is that um, I think that humans um, I don't know a lot, a lot of what I've worked on of late is is sort of trying to push back on the notion that humans are dumb. I think that humans are doing the best that they can in their respective situations in terms of trying to um, um, solve problems and um, uh, and deal with situations and and. Um, I guess one of the pushbacks that I have is that there's a strong kind of computational and information processing orientation. And, and, and some of this is kind of the legacy of Herbert Simon and others, which is which is great. But I think that we also do other things than kind of compute an information process. And, and so there's an opportunity to sort of look at what that looks like as humans kind of situationally problem solve and, and, and try to deal with different types of um, situations. Um, um, the other one is, and, and this is probably where the overlaps start between kind of a micro-foundational perspective of strategy and, and strategy as practice, 
is that um, we don't take things sort of for given. Uh, so, so there's affordances or uses for objects and, and, and resources. And, and if you th think of um, something like factor markets, for example, so Jay Barney's article in 86, which is a foundational and important sort of statement about the resource-based view, one of our key theories, um, it argues that kind of resources are exhausted of their uses in some sense, right? So the price reflects all information, right? And I think one of the opportunities is a different lens on that, which says that, you know, um, um, factors, objects and resources have multiple affordances and uses. And I, I think that this is a really important uh, key issue at the nexus of, of strategies practice where um, this question of sort of affordance has been recognized, but I'm not sure that it's been fully married, at least based on sort of, as I was looking at this literature, and this is sort of looking on Google Scholar, looking at who's citing what and so forth. I feel like this isn't an issue that's fully been wrestled with and, and it's, a, it's a question that I'm interested in and if there's if there's kind of folks listening to this that want to want to talk more about that I'd be I'd be thrilled to do that and, and, and I've got one paper with Todd Zanger and, and Stuart Kaufman where we deal with this in S&J but but I think that we're just beginning to deal with this question it, it, it fundamentally opens up one of the kind of the big assumptions that we have for something like the resource-based view which is that whether markets are efficient or not which I don't think they are and, and which leaves open all kinds of opportunities. And this also, uh, again, is, is a fundamentally different conception of organism, organism sort of environment relationship or firm environment relationship. And I think we're starting to see that in, in kind of the SDR division in the sense of Connie Halfat, for example, looking at questions of shaping, you know, how our environments are shaped, not just processed, right? And, and, and getting into the specific mechanics of that, how that happens, I think is, is, a, is a huge, uh, huge opportunity. Um, so one of the uh, uh, points that I think uh, uh, is represents a, a significant opportunity is thinking about science itself as, as a tool or a practice. And, and so with Alfonso Gambardella and, and Todd Zenger and others, we've been thinking about what we're calling kind of the theory-based view. And, and I think that it has interesting overlaps with practice uh, because um, you know theorizing and having a scientific sort of conception of what you're doing uh, is is you know we see that as something that we're engaging in but we think that we ought to think about humans and managers also this in fact the humans aren't done point humans and managers oh. in their respective situations also trying to sort of figure out what it is that we're doing and having essentially kind of a, a unique model of the world and from my perspective, it's, it's a way of thinking about how we could bootstrap heterogeneity in essence, right? So it answers questions like, where do unique novel expectations and intentions come from? And in the language that I think that might sort of over, that might resonate with a practice crowd, I'm not sure. The, 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 the one paper that I found in the strategies practice space was a, there's a paper, um, I want to say maybe general management inquiry by Stuart Clegg that used this language of meta practice. And so how is it that we come up with what are the practices for selecting practices and and the what are the mechanisms through which those become kind of organization specific um, um, rather than sort of you know general and and I guess um, the other the other point which is my final one here on on the on the, on the bottom is that um, um, I like sort of thinking about kind of a first person or a we point of view 
So one that is organizational and firm specific. And, and, and the, the language of sort of subjectivity, pragmatism, and intentionality is probably the language that resonates in part with the strategies practice crowd. I had a very sort of momentous interaction with Michael Cohen, who's you know, since passed away for several hours in, in Helsinki at this conference. And he sort of pointed me to this literature um, of Dewey and others who kind of wrestle with how do we think about um, managers sort of problem solving, actively problem solving. And Dewey obviously was known for his work on habit. And I've seen how that habits and routines have showed up in the strategy of practice literature. But Dewey also as sort of a countervailing force when habits don't work, things don't pan out, uh, um, we gauge in some kind of problem solving. We, we, we sort of, we theorize, we de develop a model, we develop intentions, and we try to use the affordances of things around us to solve the situation. And I think that's a, that's a significant opportunity in terms of kind of overlap between a SDR and an SAP kind of approach to, to, um, to strategy. Sure that. Um, so the opportunity, if I try to sort of crystallize it into kind of key points here is one, I think is just origins, origins, origins. And so how do we uh, come up with novel resources if we're thinking from a from a uh, kind of a str perspective but also types of practices and in intentions uh, where do our intentions uh, 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 come from and in, including collective collective ones um, the second point is unique a unique organizational or firm specific point of view so i think we do a lot of Borrowing from psychology, which is great, or borrowing from sociology, which is great. So we have sociological models of why practices diffuse. But I think that one great opportunity for us as a field, I don't know, it's, all, it's just long been my pet peeve that we sort of see management as this, or strategy as this applied field where we take stuff from economics or from psychology and sociology and we apply it to the organizational context. But I think that there's a lot to be said for thinking about a unique organizational perspective then also a firm or organization specific point of view and how organizations come with that. So what do organization specific practices look like beyond the ones that diffuse from somewhere else, right? So we all use PowerPoint say, or we all use a certain type of practice, but those also become novel and firm specific as we use them. And, 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 and so I, I think that there's an opportunity to carefully look at those types of issues. I think it's 30 seconds. Teppo. Oh, oh, right. Just one last thing, and then we're probably going to have to hand over to Sarah, but I invite everybody to ask questions directly to you via the chat, and we got a Q&A at the end. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I had. I'd maybe just point quickly to uh, the, the pragmatism of John Dewey, because he has this sort of theory and practice notion, which is a really nice notion. And with that, that's all I have. So I'm ready for questions if there are any, or I can take them at the end. So either way. Someone got one very quick one. Put up a hand if you wish. I'm sharing my slides. So what we can look at that. Well, I think we'll use the chat, please, everybody. And I think we should hand over to Sarah. Great. Can you see my slides? Yes, excellent. Okay, so uh, thank you so much. I'm 
was really excited to be invited to do this because it caused me to reflect on my journey as a scholar. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I think I was uh, one of the first people to went to one of the first SAP uh, sessions at EGOS well before SAP was even a thing at the Academy of Management. And this was when I was a doctoral student. And really, my journey as a doctoral student and as a scholar really came just as strategy as practice was emerging. My particular interest was in cognition. Uh, and I was, I was interested in cognition because I was interested in strategic choice in these kind of contexts of 90 and uncertainty where it's difficult to know what to do. It's hard to project the future. And um, there's, you know, the, these kinds of uncertainties introduce doubt that makes choice uh, possible. So my approach is looking at cognition. I know Matthias later is gonna talk about open strategy. So these are different angles on the question that then can be addressed using these different kinds of approaches. My own dissertation, looked at how telecommunications firms uh, responded to uh, the fiber optic revolution, so technological discontinuity, and I did a quantitative paper, um, kind of SDR style and a qualitative paper, more of SAP uh, style. The quantitative paper was looking at the dependent variable of strategic choices as represented uh, by changes in patenting investments. Um, my explanatory variable was word counts and letters to shareholders to represent attention. So I was looking at the degree to which attention was associated with sub to, to the new technology versus the old technology was related to subsequent um, uh, changes in investment patterns. And indeed, I did show that, you know, controlling for a lot of alternative explanations, that was indeed the case. However, at the same time, I was doing a qualitative ethnographic study in one inside one a technology firm in which I was looking at their technology projects. I was observing the projects, but I was analyzing ultimately the strategic choices. So again, both of these studies looked at strategic choice in this case, whether to invest or not in a particular new technology or new project, looking at the cognitive processes. Um, so I'll start by just showing a basic image of, of the model that came out. The first model, I wrote a few different papers off the ethnography, but the first model that came out of that study in which I began to understand, the, I was seeking to understand the role of cognition, but what came up time and again in the observations was this important role of interests. Um, which you can see here. And so what I ultimately ended up doing was developing a model that looked at, I think someone needs to mute, I don't know where that is, uh, looking at a model um, in which the frames uh, inter interacted with interests. And it was the process by which people points of view, the degree to which frames resonated or not, interacted with people's interests in the ways that they duked it out in a political way inside an organization, which led to either some kind of predominant collective frame emerging and therefore a decision, or frames remained, remained divergent inside the organization and therefore the decision was deferred. You can see the arrows going back and forth all over the place this is because these processes are super recursive and interactive. And that is one of the beauties of taking a practice-based lens is you can kind of show, kind of revel in that interactiveness um, when you are on the more STR side, you worry that that's endogeneity that uh, hides your findings. But in fact, on the practice side, the endogeneity is where all the action is. And so this was a model that you know pointed out that it wasn't just cognition, that it was also the interests inside uh, organizations that mattered in a kind of political process. So because I was doing these papers at the same time, 
what, what I initially had done in the quantitative paper was simply establish that my measure of cognition, which was word counts and letters to shareholders to represent attention, I, I had shown that that mattered and I was controlling for the other standard explanations and strategy capabilities and incentives. And here I'll focus on the incentives part. But having done the ethnographic work, it really occurred to me that instead of just controlling for incentives, I should be thinking about the ways that incentives and cognition interact because that's clearly what was happening in the uh, in my framing contest paper. That was clearly what was happening in the ethnography that wasn't just like you controlled for incentives and then you had cognition that they that was an interactive process where people were, going back to Teppo's point, humans were interacting with each other in important ways. And so because of the ethnography, I then in my quantitative analysis realized I should look at this in, in in, in an interaction. And so instead of just controlling for it, I interacted my cognitive measure with my incentives measure. And what I was able to show is that and what these three lines basically show is when incentives to change, meaning other, you know, other, uh, you know, whether they had um, a large share in the marketplace or the, uh, the existing technologies and things like that, when incentives were low, attention to the new technology led to a greater change in their strategic investments. Whereas when incentives were high, the cognition didn't add as much. And so you could see that the cognition was a way to overcome in some ways if there was organizational resistance because incentives weren't there. And so the fact that I did these studies together meant that I got a richer analysis in the quantitative study because I was uh, doing the qualitative study. And so the way I think of, of quantitative research and more STR style research is really that of uh, uncovering patterns and then you can use the qualitative research to really understand why those patterns exist and what are the mechanisms behind them. So uh, just a few concluding thoughts. One, what this allowed me to do is show that cognition was process as well as content, multi-level individuals, groups, and organizations, social and interactive. Framing was both about their own interpretation and selling others. It was a political process. And that incentives, cognition, and capabilities were tightly intertwined creating inertia in periods of environmental change or a possible, a possible source of change for um, given that there is this potential for purposeful human action, which I was able to uncover in the qualitative field study. So some implications for research that I think when, again, going to what is the opportunity uh, between SAP and STR, one, using longitudinal approaches where possible, being clear about what's a snapshot versus what's a process, Taking an ex-ante perspective, really understanding what things look like before people make the choices or take the actions um, and not just uh, ex-post rationalizing them. Um, paying attention to the multiplicity. A lot of people have described cognition as sort of the blind man and the elephant, that each person is seeing something different and that the question is how accurate can you be? And what you know these studies basically showed is accuracy is not everything. Everyone has their own inter interpretation and it's the interactions that lead to strategic choices and action, whether or not the perceptions are accurate. Um, and so it's very different from say a Porter-esque view of, of strategy where the, uh, the goal is really accuracy. And then finally, the need to take into account that there's, you know, uh, uh, other group organizational field dynamics and you can't ignore, uh, you know, in the strategy as practice world, you can't ignore the alternative explanations. You have to actually incorporate them into your models in the way that I did when I looked at incentives. So those are some of the main ideas that I had just to give you a sense of the journey that I took as a doctoral student and trying to bring these two perspectives together. Thanks so much.
Fabulous, Sarah. Bang on time. Wonderful job. Two great studies, which I know people will admire. Um, I think we have time for questions. Who would like to ask a couple of questions? We haven't had any yet, so it's time we had some. There's lots of meaty material there. We aren't allowed to say that anymore. Who's got a question? Well, I, I'll just comment on Michael's. He quotes me, endogeneity is where all the action is. That's how I, I mean, all my research is, is really, even, you know, even on the quantitative side is really figuring out ways to represent the endogeneity, still try to understand the mechanisms, but not, not act like it doesn't exist. Like that, the real world is endogenous. Let's not pretend yeah. it's not. That's so true. thank you, Michael, for calling that out. <laughs> Can I ask a question? And it's going to be a naive question, especially in this group and especially talking to, to Sarah Kaplan on this. Would you, so I think about, I, I think about different types of problems. And if I would think about, so your, your interaction slide really got me thinking about incentive incompatibility, fragmented knowledge or information asymmetry, and something I think we all deal with a lot more in the last decade, true disagreement. Do you have a sense of when the interaction between framing, um, I'm thinking about your flowchart, right? So mm -hmm. uh, uh, I have to think about what it what, what was in the flow was in the flowchart. The framing and framing, intentionality, frame resonance, fighting yeah. about the frames, interests. So, yeah. Is there a way? Do you have do you have an 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 idea, a guess, a conjecture about how the different how incentives and frames, or how incentives, frames, emotions? would th their importance would vary with problems that vary in terms of information information asymmetry or um, or, uh, or or fragmented knowledge versus just true disagreement yeah well what i observed in my qualitative study was that the the true disagreements were really shaped by the incentives <laughs> in the sense that um People's point of view was really shaped by whether they were, you know, if they were in pursuit of a patent or in pursuit, like if their if their team was going to be able to stay together because of this thing, they were they they really believed it, and and so and when I saw the incentive shifting, I also saw that their points of view would shift, or when someone effectively intervened on the incentive side, you actually got people thinking differently. So what what my qualitative research would say is there it's very difficult to distinguish between actual disagreement and the incentives because the, because the process that produces them is so tightly um, linked. And it goes back, you know, you can go back to Nelson and Winter and truces as, 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 as routines is based on truces that are, you know, both cognitive and, and incentive-based. And I think it's very hard to see those as differently. And that's where I, you know, in my view, differ from the est maybe the, the classic Porter-esque view of strategy, which is there is an accurate view, because honestly, there isn't an accurate view. There are only points of view that come from, that are produced by both our backgrounds and our experiences and all of that, and our incentives. And so I that's part of what I'm trying to kind of take down on this is that they're really, that that your question even is, is a question in the sense that it really is always going to be produced through that process. Does that make sense? Well, I think I find that the comment even that true disagreement is driv driven by prefer by incentives. I mean, that would be interesting if we could demonstrate that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's um, almost spoken by 
Thank you. Like an economist, uh, when you stress incentives so much. But with that, we'll. Uh, I'm not going to allow you the moment, even a chance to repost on that. We all, thank you very much, Sarah. I'm going to pass us on to Tommy. Questions to Sarah via the chat, of course, please. Hello, do you hear me all well? Very good. Then do you see my slides? Perfect. So, so I was thinking I, I should probably talk about micro foundations because I've just written something on psychological micro foundations of, of uh, managers in multinational corporations. But then I realized that the Teppo is going to talk about that. Then I was thinking of talking about cognition. But then I was thinking, well, Sarah will talk about that. And then open strategy would have been a great topic, or even MA and, and heuristics, but, but those are also covered. So, so what was left for me is to look at the strategy process area, which I of course feel very passionate about. But but in strategy process area, actually there, there are distinctions, like like uh, what, what Richard wrote a few years ago as an article about the distinctions between strategy process research and and strategy practice research. But I think there's even more bridging areas, bridging phenomena, bridging theories that connect these two areas together. So I decided to label it instead of distinctions to look at the, the bridges between these, these two areas and look at it predominantly from the strategy process perspective. By the way, this, this picture is the world's longest hanging bridge uh, in Switzerland, in Zermatt, 494 meters, who dares to to walk, walk through it. And, and of course, it shows that bridges are sometimes uh, dangerous to walk, walk through as well, because you never know what happens when you try to bridge things. So, so I wanted to start with, uh, with, with uh, what, what we framed as the strategy processes and practices, which kind of strategy processes coming from the SDR side and strategy practices from SAP side, and, and how these uh, are either competing or or, or kind of complementing each other, or even criticizing each other, or how they are kind of combinatory in a way with each other. And, and, and what, what we wanted to do in the special issue, when we had the special issue on the interaction, intersections of these two practices, wanted to look at these together in a way. How could they strengthen and support each other? And I, I, I remember that we came up with, with this kind of model that, that was showing little bit of the flow, which, which kind of highlights the strategy process aspect, but at the same time then takes up the practices that, that constitute the, the micro foundations or the, or the different elements of the strategy processes as they flow over time. So the philosophy was that, that this should be maybe seen more as a combinatory and mutually strengthening research areas rather than criticizing each other or somehow seeing, seeing competing views because they address different aspects and, and, and then contribute to better understanding of the overall phenomenon. But, but if you think of the, the strategy process practice perspective, it's not that far from, from what we already learned from Robert Bergelman in the 1980s when looking at organizations and how things happen there and how, how different venture managers try to sell uh, uh, their ventures to, to the sponsors and how they try to then influence how the organizational strategy ends up emerging and evolving from within the company. So, so it, it, it's, it's interesting to see how, how these different lenses have been somehow filled in 
these different empty boxes that Robert left us for, for, for studying and, and, and kind of enhanced our understanding how this, this overall evolutionary strategy making, making happens. So, so the, the critical thing, of course, here is that, and, and Sarah emphasized it really well, that, that uh, we, we, we kind of have this quant qual differentiation. However, in the strategy process area, it, it tends to be qual on both sides, as the SDR side and, and SAP side. But we still have little bit differences in the lenses with which we use, because the, the process lens is more of a temporal lens. We want to understand the movement of something and how organizations create it. When in the practices, it's more about the, the how the practice is, is kind of causing the movement of happening, how, how the things revolve around the portfolio of practices that the organization is having. So there is the movement aspect, but there is also the granularity aspect with the micro foundations, with the cognition, with the quant qual uh, 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 in, in intersection as well, which are important to, to recognize as we are putting these, these pieces together to form a better view of, of the combined uh, processes and practices. There are areas of strategy process research that are particularly favorable for, for, for practice type of, of studying. And, and, and there was a recently a, a literature review published in long-range planning on, on strategy implementation, which took the SAP perspective in particular to try to see that, that where can the SAP literature add to the traditional strategy implementation literature. And, 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 and it, it provided this kind of great table. So, so the paper by, by Martin Inger and, and Helene, it provided this kind of great table looking at these three different elements that are important in strategy implementation, managerial agency, temporality, and materiality, and then what the practice perspective can contribute to these different areas for enhancing our understanding of the agency in the implementation processes on the temporality, the, the kind of processual aspect, and, and eventually then the materiality in the implementation and what would be some of the interesting research questions that, that SAP could bring to the strategy implementation literature. It, it's actually very similar than, than what we ended up doing a little bit earlier in the adaptive strategy implementation review piece where we were looking at that, how the strategy implementation, how we need to adapt the strategies continuously, the classical uh, um, Minzbergian emergent strategy perspective, but, but then looking at that, how does that kind of adaptation work actually happen? How are strategies being enacted by people? And, and how, are, how are then the, the feedback loops being enacted by the people who created the strategies? And how does all this interplay works together in a way over time? And, and eventually that, that gives us then the view of organizations as this kind of uh, uh, loops that happen at the corporate level, but also then in the divisional levels and in the business unit levels, where, where continuous adaptation is happening in multiple different speeds in, in different levels of the organization. And, and, and then what are the practices involved with it? And how does that then bring the whole organization onwards over time? Right? There are other lenses that, that, that one can use. And like I mentioned, I'm not going to talk about cognition, not, also not, not about the routine dynamics which are all kind of actually quite nice areas where we can intervene or bridge between the classical strategy research, strategy process research, and strategy practice research. The, the natural complement to what, what Sarah was, was representing or presenting is the, the kind of um, sense-making 
perspective, sense making, sense giving perspective. That, that what are the practices that uh, sense givers use to to kind of communicate strategy to people, and then what are the practices that people people then have in receiving those messages in the organization, and 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 whether we look at them from implementation perspective or whether we look at it from the strategy process perspective, how these different narratives evade the organization, how we communicate about the strategy and how then these, these narratives take their life of their own and, and start making the organization work. If you think of, for example, this classical study by Sonnenschein 2010, it wasn't really framed into the SAP perspective, but it addresses many things that the SAP scholars are looking at at the moment, that, that how these different narratives and ways to talk about strategy and communicate with, with different language, how, how it influences people's thinking about strategy and then eventually strategy implementation. There's other studies that, that have looked at the, the interplay of sense-making and sense-giving. I, I, I cannot avoid also mentioning the, the attention-based view, which is now has been now recently very close to my heart, because eventually the, the way originally attention-based view was, was being framed was, was with, with Chuck Welch walking around in the organization and giving attention to different organizational units in GE. And then uh, almost like being a gardener who waters, waters different units and give them attention and then the unit start growing and some other units that don't get attention die away. And in principle, what, what this, this literature is actually describing is the, the managerial CEO practice that, that Jack Welch was using to direct the attention dynamically inside the organization. And that's why also I would see, see actually quite close links to the classical STR research on the dynamic attention-based view and, and the SAP literature. Even if you look at the different studies by John Joseph and, and Willie Ocasio, they all kind of come to that direction. And, and you can see the, the practices, in fact, uh, 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 in different ways highlighted in, in these studies. And we also tried to do this together with, uh, with Eero and, and Willie to, to say how communication plays an important role as, as, a, as a practice in there. We could also go onwards and onwards into paradox theory and other, other theories, but, but let, me, let me summarize it in the interest of time that, that there's, there's these natural processual theories that are particularly attuned to bridging. However, like uh, you were already alluding to, the, the, even the classical strategy theories, the I.O., resource-based, even dynamic capabilities-based, I think Teppo, Teppo was alluding to it that uh, you could even think of resource-based view that how do the practices actually constitute resources eventually? But where's the social complexity coming that is so critical for the resource inimitability and non-substitutability? And eventually it, it, it's the portfolio of practices in the organization. So, so there are things that one could import and, and study in, in analyzing these two different areas. But now we will stop before I run totally out of time. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tommy. That was great. Lots of material um, to share there. Um, very quick question. I noticed Caleb's got a complicated question in the... <laughs> Thank you very much, Caleb. I'm not sure whether we can deal with it here, but I, I hope either in the chat or in the final Q&A, I think Teppo might have something to say on this question as well from Caleb regarding agency and micro foundations. So, um, uh, Fitchhoff, what about recursivity in strategy process 
own practices. Do you want to briefly explain your point and then we'll let Tommy briefly respond to that and then move on? I think the, the question is already quite clear. So the what happens when strategy processes fill, fold into themselves? So it's not just over time, but it's also recursive in, in that sense. So I'm, I'm curious um, if that gives a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, everything eventually is, is kind of over time, right? Because even if it's recursive, it happens later, right? So, so it could return back to the in a way, the topic area, or, or you could have multiple levels, like, like in my picture that you have the top level, kind of the, the slow-moving corporate strategy loop, and then you have faster-moving divisional strategy loops, or, or even faster-moving product market uh, uh, adjustments. So, so that way, uh, uh, all of those are on time. But I, I think the, the recursiveness you could have from, from vertical, or you could have it then that, that you return back to the beginning and you start thinking that, okay, what, what did we actually learn? How do we, would we need to adjust the strategy? So I'm not sure which one you refer more, but I, I think that the, at least the, the temporal loop, not the vertical loop, but the temporal loop, obviously is that, that the life, life and world has changed along the way. So eventually it, it, it's technically, it's not that way anymore recursive because we live even even differentially in a, in a different world. So, so we need to anyway revise the strategy. Then the question is just how much do we need to do it? But if you then think the recursiveness in the vertical uh, uh, area, I think that's an interesting question, how to synchronize that correctly. And I don't think our, our, our strategy research community has, has really provided a super good answer to it, that, that how the, the strategies get synchronized. We tend to assume that it's kind of like cascading down and and flowing down, but 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 they might be actually more loosely coupled than 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 what we think, and and I think that we should maybe account a little bit better. Thank you, thank you, Tommy Fitchoff. Good question. And um, now Maria's got a fantastic question in the chat, one which is dear to me. I'd love to give time to that, but I do encourage people perhaps to respond to Maria's question about institutional lens and different countries or different cultural contexts. But I think now we should hand over to Natalia. Is that all right? Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me? And can you see slides? Okay, great. Thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me to this uh, uh, conversation. And actually quite similar to Sarah, when I was preparing this presentation, what I did, I actually did reflection on my research. And when I was reflecting, I came up with some like really practical opportunities uh, for the research at the intersection of research, uh, strategy research and strategist practice research. And I would like to share today them with you. But first, I would like to start with the story of me as a PhD student. I started really much as a strategy, uh, the uh, core strategy researcher. So I was interested in how performance uh, of uh, mergers and acquisition. And when I did my first literature review, uh, how experience influenced performance of mergers and acquisition, what I found that some studies claim that it's positive relationship, some that it's negative relationship, 
uh, inverted U shape, U shape, and actually there is no. And then I was puzzled by this. Um, and I think I moved my attention to a bit more micro foundation of strategy, right? As Tommy said, uh, strategy is process, if we call them like that. So I started to look in, in post-acquisition integration as a process. And of course, I found that identity, emotion, justice, everything is influenced this post-acquisition integration. And then uh, we submitted the paper to actually special issue in strategic management that um, Tommy already has mentioned. And because it was a special issue on intersection between strategies, process, and the practice, then we looked at the definition of strategizing in strategies practice research. So we decided to go much deeper in our understanding of emotions. Yes, we observed a lot of emotions, but we didn't have enough contribution. But when we adopt the strategies practice lens, we actually found that target managers and employees mask negative emotions from the acquire. So we called it uh, masking practicing or practice of masking negative emotions. And in addition, we also observed that actually the practice of communicating via emails and phone calls enable uh, targets, managers, and employees to mask their emotions. And because acquirer uh, didn't see and didn't realize that things were going quite badly, they didn't take uh, any corrective actions in their uh, strategy implementation, right? And so what we observed, it was the failure of strategy implementation. Uh, now, when I did this slide, I was thinking, huh, did I become, uh, did I become strategist practice research here, researcher here? But then I was thinking probably not because at least Richard didn't know me. And then when I was preparing for this session, I decided to kind of analyze my current uh, projects. So am I strategist process or am I strategist practice or where I am? And by doing so, I came up actually with the research opportunities. Uh, let's start with strategy formulation and implementation. This is also the core for strategy researchers, right? But then, uh, in one of my current projects, I'm focusing about, or oh, I'm focusing on practice of on hybrid work. So the questions are here, whether and how the practice of hybrid work changed strategy formulation. For example, I don't know, do companies still fly board directors to the same location or are we doing now online? Uh, how companies did it during COVID when they couldn't travel? And what's the outcome for the strategy formulation? Same with strategy implementation. Especially uh, imagine post-acquisition integration. Uh, some companies had to do it completely online because we were not allowed to go to the office. So how did it go? Uh, currently, again, 
most of employees and most of managers are still not fully in the offices. So we are working in high, we are working in hybrid mode. So how does it influence the implementation of the strategy? Uh, again, if you take strategy formulation and implementation, but then technology which we are using now, Zoom, uh, uh, Teams, uh, Slack, which is internal communication uh, platform for employees and managers. So how do this technology influence the strategy formulation and implementation? And here we can look, for example, as uh, top managers who are responsible for strategy formulations. Do they actually go and analyze Slack where the employees and managers can bring a lot of uh, points which could actually give a rise of strategy from the bottom, right? Uh, so, uh, what do we know about this technology in strategy formulation? And then also about the strategy implementation. Most of the companies now trying to cut the cost for traveling. So more and more hybrid work, more and more Zoom meetings and so on. Before uh, managers, middle managers who were like really uh, responsible for the strategy implementation, they would go to the another city, they would do full day workshop. In the evening, we would go to a restaurant or bar, have wine. And so uh, a lot of human interaction, you could observe emotions, you can feel people. How the current way of, of working influences the strategy implementation? This is also a great research opportunity. Finally, uh, do e-leaders need new skills? And here I'm speaking about um, if top managers or middle managers or whoever who is responsible for strategy in the company, do they actually now continuously be on platforms like Slack uh, to, to communicate about the new strategy? Because this communication uh, could increase commitment uh, among the employees and the lower managers to the strategy. So, and by increasing commitment, of course, they could ensure that strategy implementation would work. Um, same uh, about strategy formulation and implementation and uh, practice of using AI. So we know and we study the banks uh, who are giving uh, uh, loans to the people, but they actually, these banks, they don't really have employees because the alg algorithms decide uh, to whom to give loans and to, to whom not to give. But who are the people who are leading these algorithms? Do we have new actors? Uh, in strategy, if before it was top managers and probably senior middle managers, now it might be that we have data scientists is a new player in the uh, strategy implementation and formulation. Because top managers uh, know the strategy, they know values, but they cannot write algorithm which would implement it. So data scientists are doing it. And without understanding and without um, interaction between top managers and data, data scientists, 
any strategy implementation with the use of new technology will fail. So the future research can investigate this interaction and new actions, uh, new actors in the strategy formulation and implementation. Uh, innovation, okay, probably it's not like the core strategy, but still innovation and the current uh, breakthrough in chat uh, GPT, uh, which can generate context, uh, content, uh, images. So we need to understand how this new tool will influence the ideation processes in the company. And of course, the, uh, the innovation outcome of the companies. There is plenty, plenty, uh, there are plenty of opportunities to study it. And I think that it would require uh, this micro view on the, on the processes. And probably, uh, Another uh, opportunity. So what are the new uh, services and new business uh, models which can arise with this chat uh, GPT? Like, for example, now you, you can put um, in the chat uh, question, please, um, I want menu for the whole week, uh, the meal plans for three meals per day and chat will generate it for you. If you are vegetarian, if you low carb diet, any diet, uh, so it will generate for you uh, the menu for the five days or seven days. And the next step you can ask, okay, now please do shopping list. I could actually implement this menu. So we need to think how these kind of technologies can actually change the strategy work in the companies. It can have like great implication for the restaurants who can actually adjust their menus and reduce waste and improve um, profit and so on. And just one last thought about yeah, Natalia, it should be yeah. your last thought because we're going to need to hand over to Matthias thank you yeah yeah okay probably I will not go here but uh how do we need to do it like uh do we do it with uh, qualitative research quantitative research uh, but I think it's mixed methods and one and form another and so on yeah thank you so much Thank you very much, Natalia. Raising these, all these issues about technology and materiality um, and new ways of communicating and interacting with employees, I think is a brilliant handover to Matthias. Matthias, are you ready to talk about the open strategy inter-overlap? Yes, I am. Here are my slides and I'm ready to start. Great. So first of all, thank you very much to Richard, Michael, the entire organizing team for inviting us, not just me, but the entire uh, group of people here to share some thoughts and on the commonalities and differences between SAP and STR. I will do so based on the case of open strategy. Um, in doing so, I will not act as an expert of the field, but rather as a person who has recently made a few very humble contributions to that field and who has made a few observations about the STR, SAP overlaps um, and distinctions. And I will also deliberately avoid citations to avoid that single people might feel misrepresented. I, I rather take a more holistic 
perhaps even philosophically inspired and as Tepo said, biased and very personal view on STR and SAP based on the case of open strategy. Um, to begin with, um, open strategy based on my understanding constitutes a thematic overlap, namely in the sense that both SAR and SAP scholars constitute a community around open strategy, which is a broader trend of greater transparency and inclusion in strategy making. There are also a few other, perhaps even more than a few other thematic overlaps between the two divisions and interest groups, such as a shared interest in strategy implementation, dynamic capabilities, etc. And I think Pumi has given us a lot of pointers uh, along these lines here. However, I think that the open strategy community also hints at points of distinctiveness among STR and SAP. Example, um, in, the, in the open strategy community, some scholars focus on explaining outcomes, such as typically higher quality and uh, greater creativity of strategic ideas through greater transparency and inclusion in the strategy process, as well as typically a greater understanding of the, the strategy in place, as well as typically greater commitment to implementing the strategy and more. In turn, other scholars typically zoom in on and try to understand open strategy itself, namely the practices and process of performing open strategy in the strategy process and how it shapes and it is shaped by other practices in the strategy process, as well as in part even broader organizational and institutional contexts. This research then also ventures into broader areas such as open organizing, which, um, which people have recently uh, delved more deeply into, for example, in special issue in organization studies. And then this area or the open strategy really leaves the clear-cut realms of strategy as we know, um, perhaps in some divisions and interest groups. And now if we look at these, uh, let's say, not necessarily clear-cut, but still recognizable two directions, now I guess, based on Richard's highlights in the mission statements, uh, which let's say areas STR and SAP scholars would primarily locate themselves in. Well, oftentimes what we see is that, um, let's say STR scholars typically, but not exclusively might try to explain the outcomes of open strategy, whereas SAP scholars typically, but also not exclusively aim to gain an understanding of uh, the process and practices of open strategy. Now, as I'm saying this, that doesn't necessarily mean that STR scholars are only interested in process uh, or uh, uh, are, not, are not necessarily interested in process and practices or in turn that SAP scholars are not interested in outcomes. I think that the case of open strategy, at least based on my humble observation, shows that um, open strategy in, in a way showcases certain tendencies in both divisions, both divisions and interest groups that help us understand and tease out some distinctions um, and commonalities that we can elaborate in greater depth and a bit further. Now, let's let's try to do that, um, perhaps based on a deeper, more philosophical perspective, namely um, against the background of Habermas or the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas. Um, so more specifically, Habermas' work on knowledge and interests. Uh, which has recently been elaborated even further um, in the in the area of management and organization by Cornelissen, uh, Hallora, and David Seidel uh, to adjust Habermas's language a bit further. Um, 
So I, I think Habermas is really healthy here because um, his work sheds light on differences between scholarly communities from an epistemological perspective that is um, based on different ways in which knowledge is produced. And of course, the ensuing characterization of distinctions has to be simplified. Obviously, you know, the divisions and interest groups, especially ours, which STR and SAP reflect much more than just one way of producing knowledge, as is represented here by dashed ovals that can include much more than, than just uh, the ones that Aramas might have characterized. Um, and then the open strategy community also, also doesn't just include STR and SAP scholars, which is why the blue form extends beyond the dashed ovals here. Um, and again, also Habermas has been criticized for an overly simplified framing of scholarly communities. However, his work does help us reveal some important distinctions based on the specific case of open strategy that can then perhaps be elaborated in conversation. One refers to forms of theory building. So what we can observe here is that um, SDR scholars in the open strategy community might tend to pursue what is called formal analytic inquiry, or in other words, you know, propositional, hypothetical, deductive, or whatever, partly even also configurational forms of theory building. And this oftentimes entails an epistemological stance of inquiring into the world of facts, set here in quotation marks, because our month actually elaborates how these facts are made by the rules of scholarly communities, but that would be uh, something for a different talk. Um, but if we zoom in on these ways of theory building, then SAP scholars in turn might tend to pursue more interpretive synthetic inquiries, uh, which is to a great extent actually participation-based, um, and it entails an epistemological stance of inquiry into meanings and practice worlds. And this also then implies very different knowledge interests that we just uh, found on the previous slide, namely on the STR side uh, and tendency then explaining and predicting outcomes and uh, on the SAP side, uh, understanding practices and processes. There are also implicit assumptions ingrained uh, in those areas about the stance by the researcher. For example, then on the SDR side, uh, rather objective and neutral observing phenomena at a distance, and again in quotation marks, because Habermas clarifies actually that objectivity itself um, isn't possible, possible per se, but that's again for a different talk. And then on the SAP side to be more involved, or in other words, oftentimes SAP scholars wouldn't necessarily assume that they do not participate uh, in the practice world that they aim to understand. Quite the contrary, they, they might actually gain an understanding of it through their participation. Yet again, to be clear, the distinction between SDR and SAP is not clear cut and black and white. There's also an in-between space. Um, and I think that the panelists here demonstrate that it is possible to do both, not necessarily all in one project, but actually across projects. And I myself have also have a paper on open strategy that zooms in on practices and processes and at, at the same time attempts to contribute to explaining outcomes. And I think that this is an important way forward, uh, which I would also like to conclude with. Um, in a sense, uh, we come to, come to a conclusion. I think it's a little surprising that STR and SAP do share some themes uh, such as open strategy and are partly even organized in communities around those themes. Yet at the same time, SAP might also consider to be broader than strategy, especially when looking at open organizing as an example 
um, or as a theme that SAP scholars and others have uh, have jointly ex explored and that then leaves the realms of strategy per se. Um, at the same time, both SDR and SAP make complementary and irreducible contributions to unpacking common themes such as open strategy. And this, I think, is important to be acknowledged as such. Uh, therefore, as we move forward, I would, again, very, very humbly suggest uh, accepting and celebrating the complementary contributions made by scholars from the different divisions and interest groups. I would also suggest harnessing these complementarities. This, for example, could be done in different ways. And in fact, in the case of open strategy, this part even is already done and could be replicated across shared themes, namely, for example, organizing shared sessions at AOM and elsewhere that foster dialogues as in, in the format that we're doing right, right now. Um, and we could also then engage in joint projects. And now uh, this sounds very blunt and uh, disappointed, disappointingly generic as a, as a conclusion uh, of a very broad brushed overview um, of potential commonalities and distinctions between the divisions and interest groups. However, uh, anyone who's ever collaborated with a person who is trained in a different way of theory building knows that such collaborations entail quite uneasy conflicts between different ways of theory building, including different deep-seated epistemological assumptions, um, which means that um, this is, is actually a very fundamental uh, concerned to engage in joint projects, but I think that these conflicts are worth it because we as STR and SAP scholars would be able to reflect jointly at the process, uh, practices and outcomes of strategy phenomena. They think this uh, could be could be a very fruitful, very uh, promising way forward. This is what I have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matthias. That's a call to arms or coin, a direct call to joint work and just the right way of finishing. I think we should um, have a perhaps a question directed to Matthias before throwing things open. We've had a whole lot of questions. Caleb's produced one. Um, there's been questions about institutional context and so on and so forth. Those might be for the more general discussion, but let's start with one to Matthias if there is one. Have we got one? And Matthias. Okay. Well, um, I I suggest we third open. Um, who would like to start? Third up a, a, a hands a hands raised, please. Leonard, hi. That's not very digital. <laughs> Right. Hello. Happy to see so, you. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. No, um, maybe I want to follow up on, on the juxtaposition that Matthias showed, but it's a more general question. Um, because uh, I think some of the uh, stuff that was here presented side by side for the example of, of open strategy is, is heavy stuff. You know, that's really some, some very, I would say, onto-epistemological differences. Yeah, so that's not just things you can just glaze over. And, uh, and so while I'm all, uh, you know, in favor of, you know, synergies and getting into debate, but, but I think it's not just fun and games in the sense that there are some, some actual, um, yeah, differences of approach that might even be incommensurable. 
And uh, and so so my question would be, um, and, and this doesn't mean that we should stop debating, <laughs> but but rather I would ask all the speakers, but maybe also Matthias and maybe also Tepo already raised his hand. Uh, what are productive, constructive ways of having this debate? You know, in, the, in a way of respectfully, yeah, but also not glazing over them. This is central to our, our task this afternoon, at least this afternoon in Europe. Matthias, quick response. Tepo, quick response, please. Yeah, I can I can briefly start with that one. Um, Jean Bartunek and Sarah Rines wrote a nice paper on um, on paradoxes in the rigor relevance debate. Um, and I'm bringing up this paper not because um, they have this paper on the rigor relevance, which is not really our case here, but they're also uh, very frank, very open about the debates and the challenges that they faced when they wrote this paper together from very different perspectives. And as you say, from probably quite incommensurable perspectives. And uh, they said they uh, actually have, uh, you know, put their friendship at stake. Uh, this is how how deeply they went into conflict in, in, in those types of uh, collaborations. And um, is it now not worth pursuing those projects? I would say yes. Um, and I think that Especially the again the paradox community provides us with potential ways forward and how to manage those types of, of conflicts and uh, um, you know at the practical level most likely when we have those research projects but also when we engage in dialogue I think uh, it's always worth pursuing those dialogues just in order to acknowledge and embrace alternative perspectives and uh, accept that they are there instead of uh, yeah. Uh, pretending that's 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 great. perhaps you could stick the reference to the button and article in into the chat tepo what's your take on this no i, I really like winner's point and i want to actually in this discussion come to it because we've had a little bit of a love fest and and and, and i do think that there's sort of um conflicts and, and disparate opinions i mean i i guess one way to deal with that when i was listening to Tommy, like Tommy has this like like an arsenal of theories it was sort of i think i counted a dozen different theories and you sort of maybe just depending on what the problem is you sort of just kind of match the you're very pragmatic about here's the screwdriver for this problem for mna and here's the wrench for this and so forth uh that feels a little too promiscuous for me i like sort of <laughs> i like something something that sort of you know theories of everything in some sense even though i don't believe in that at all but, but but one way to think about it is that these theories, you know, even at the managerial level, they color what people pay attention to and what they focus on. And this is actually an offhanded comment that Sarah made, which I really liked, which was that, you know, we have these models, Porter and others, that sort of we we process the environment and we get to some accurate picture of the environment. And that's just wrong, I think. I think that's where we can probably agree across the presentations. But I, I think that's a very fundamental premise of strategy is that is that we do that, and, and I, so I think there's some agreement. The question then is, what is the lens through which we then look at the world or that managers look at the world? And then in my response to Caleb's question, I you know, I think that there's varieties of SAP, depending on which SAP scholar I talk to, you know, for some structure and agency, we can't talk about agency at all, like without talking about structure. So it's, it's sort of inherently sort of interwoven, right? But then there's others who say, no, there's individuals and so forth. And so, so I think that there's just, so many varieties of theories that it's a little bit hard to sometimes nail the nails in terms of debates. And I like the Margaret Archer quote. She said that 
when, when people came up with structurations, he said, well, that just throws a blanket. It gives a label to something that, that we still need to unpack and understand. And, and that's what, what you know, with, with micro foundations we try to do. But, but anyway, but I do like the, the impetus of the question because I think those are important questions. But I mean, we need another hour 15 to sort of fully <laughs> go into those types of details. And well, we might, uh, thank you, Tepe, that's great. And thanks for the Margaret Archer reference. Uh, so Sarah was nodding vigorously at one point. Tommy has been accused of allowing a love fest to become an orgy. Who would like to um, respond? Tommy, you might want to defend your reputation here. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you, thank you, Tempo. I, I appreciate that. Um, so, so, well, I, mean, I think we are, of course, if you think of the, and, and the question from Leonard as well, if you think of the, the situation, in essence, the strategy, you could say originated or came from economics-based theories, not, not the origins where, where you had the Harvard people developing the SWOT frameworks and so on, but, but in principle, the way it was, was brought and, and scientificated was, was kind of economics-based thinking. And then the behavioral theory came in and kind of alleviated it a little bit. And then, then the SAP comes more from a sociological tradition. So in principle, we have the sociology versus economics debate here and underlying. And of course, that, that brings us different ontological assumptions. But I would actually say this way to, to defend my, my what, what did Richard call it, orgy? I, 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 would, say, I, I would say that, um, that um, well, well, Sarah was saying it well, that, that endogeneity is where the action is. But I think actually breaking ontological boundaries is where the action is. Because uh, if you look at the, if you look at the, the studies of, of uh, for example, institutional entrepreneurs breaking up the, the, the culinary traditions or winemaking orthodoxies, then you end up having the super Tuscans and all the best wines coming from there. So, so I, I think... Uh, we should, should think of also a little bit breaking those and, and not, not necessarily always sticking so, so strictly that, that, okay, this is structuration theory, you cannot do anything else with it. Or, so so, so I, I guess uh, that would be my take, but I, I think I, I am rather pragmatist on, on this front, right? Thank you, Tommy. Sarah, do you want the last word on Natalia? Natalia or Sarah? No, you're happy. Natalia. Yeah, sorry, I didn't understand the question. Well, well, yes, I, um, my query was really whether, you know, are you an incommensurabilist, if that's the right word, or a more, um, I'm going to avoid the word promiscuous, pragmatist such as Tommy? It's really a really tough question. Um, I wouldn't want to put me in, uh, in any camp. I really like to go deep and I really like to focus on people, uh, psychology and cognition and emotion. And that can be done from either perspective or many perspectives. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, thank you very much. We, we had quite a uh, torrid, uh, Sarah's describing herself as a pragmatist in both the Julian and the colloquial meaning. So we, we do have a nice... Uh, compromise to finish with. I must thank the panelists now for setting alight this discussion um, and producing many, many insights from their, their, their personal careers. It, it was a wonderful um, panel. It's been uh, recorded, so it will be uploaded onto the 
Strategy Division's uh, website. And um, I'd like to, Mike, to thank Michael too for pioneering this series of um, distinctiveness colloquia, which have been a, a big, um, big stimulus to me over the last few months. So thank you, everybody. And I'd better close it all because we all have busy lives. I have two dogs who've also decided it's supper time. So, um, and they're Labradors, so there's no arguing with them. Okay, right. Bye-bye. Thank you.